This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome to the Nephrology Knowledge into Practice podcast, where we explore the latest evidence in kidney disease with leading experts in the field. This episode is supported by an educational grant from Trevere Therapeutics, who have no influence on the content or the choice of faculty. This educational activity is accredited for up to 0.25 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. So to claim your credits, answer the pre and post activity questions at nephrology.knowledgeinterpractice.com, which you can find a link to in the episode notes if you're listening in a podcast app. In this episode of our series on immunoglobulin A nephropathy, or IgA nephropathy, we will discuss how clinical and morphological biomarkers can be used to determine disease severity, risk of disease progression, and predict treatment response. We will then be joined by Dr. Andrew Bombach to answer some questions surrounding these topics. While IgA nephropathy is the most common primary glomerulonephritis worldwide, in the clinic, the pathology can present with diverse symptoms of varied severity. Patients can, for example, present asymptomatically, but also with hematuria or even renal failure. Currently, the only way to formally diagnose IgA nephropathy, according to the KDGO 2021 guideline on glomerular diseases, is through a kidney biopsy to detect IgA in the glomerular mesangium. IgA nephropathy is often documented with various comorbidities. IgA nephropathy is considered secondary when it is identified in the presence of conditions such as IgA vasculitis, cirrhosis, autoimmune diseases, chronic infections, and neoplasms. Of these, the leading causes of secondary IgA nephropathy are IgA vasculitis and cirrhosis, the latter also being known as chronic liver disease. A variety of tools and strategies have been developed to assist with the management and prognostication of IgA nephropathy, including the Oxford Classification and the International IgA Nephropathy Prediction Tool. The Oxford Classification scores various features of the biopsy using light microscopy. Scores are divided into five distinct categories, which are abbreviated as MEST-C. These stand for mesangial hypercellularity, endocapillary cellularity, segmental sclerosis, interstitial fibrosis slash tubular atrophy, and crescents. By referring to the Oxford classification guidelines, scores in each category allows for classification of disease severity and risk prediction of potential disease progression. The International IGAN Prediction Tool is a similar model which adds clinical information at the time of biopsy along with the Oxford classification's MEST histologic score not including the Crescent score, to its analysis. Some of the data that is included in this modelling are blood pressure, age and estimated glomerular filtration rate, or EGFR, and treatment history. The tool required is available for free online and calculates an estimated risk of 50% decline in EGFR or progression to end-stage renal failure after specified number of months. The tool was validated in a study by Sean Barber and colleagues based on a dataset of nearly 4,000 patients. The KDGO 2021 guideline views the tool a valuable resource in the quantification of risk progression. A key assessment that forms part of the prediction tool is proteinuria. Proteinuria is the strongest predictor of long-term kidney outcome. So proteinuria reduction to less than 1 gram per day is a surrogate marker of improved kidney outcome and a reasonable treatment target according to the KDGO 2021 guideline. 
So how can we implement all of this into clinical practice? Here to discuss the clinical implications of this is Dr. Andrew Bombach, who is Associate Professor of Medicine and Co-Director of the Center for Glomerular Diseases at Columbia University Irving Medical Center in New York. His disclosures are available in the episode notes. So firstly, what is your process and experience when trying to determine whether a patient is presenting with primary or secondary IgA nephropathy? Well, it, you know, in my experience, it's, it's the overwhelming majority of cases are primary IgA nephropathy, and it's very unusual for me to see secondary cases of IgA nephropathy, and those are pretty easily apparent due to whatever systemic diseases the patient has. So almost always I'm dealing with primary IgA nephropathy. And really my first uh, diagnostic branching point is to try to figure out really what kind of IgA nephropathy I'm dealing with in terms of severity and risk of progression. Um, you know, I generally break down IgA nephropathy into three categories, a very mild category, a more moderate category, and then a more severe category. Um, and my first sort of diagnostic point when I'm seeing a new IgA nephropathy patient is to put them into one of those categories. And obviously these are spectrums and there's some blending between, you know, just mild, moderate, and, and severe, but trying to figure out where in that spectrum they are is my first decision-making point. And what is the clinical utility of the Oxford classification, including the recent addition of the C-score? Can we use it to make treatment decisions? So I actually use the pathology and the Oxford classification score as my primary decision-making tool. And that may not actually be what all nephrologists do, but it's definitely what I do. I uh, am fortunate enough to have trained with great pathologists, and so I, I know that tissue really is the issue in terms of trying to figure out what kind of disease we're dealing with. So for me, I put so much weight on the Oxford score in terms of deciding specifically whether or not a patient should be treated conservatively or if a patient would benefit from immunosuppression. And there are some cases where I will, you know, deviate from the Oxford score if somebody has heavy proteinuria, kidney dysfunction, despite not having the kind of Oxford score that would lead me to, to treat. But the, on the flip side, if someone has a relatively mild set of labs, but has an aggressive looking lesion on biopsy by, by um, its Oxford score, I will usually treat those patients even if they're not meeting specific proteinuria criteria. So, you know, whenever I, I lecture about IgA nephropathy, I, I sort of put the Oxford classification score up and I basically say, if they have an E1, uh, that almost always will lead me to treat with immunosuppression. Uh, and then in terms of adding the C score, if they have a C1, that usually doesn't make me augment beyond what I would normally do for an E1. But if they have a C2, uh, that usually makes me think of using cyclophosphamide as my preferred immunosuppression. On the flip side, if they have a T2, uh, that will often lead me to consider not treating this no matter what the 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 activity is. Um, so again, the Oxford score to me is crucial in making treatment decisions. Likewise, what is the impact of the international IgAN prediction tool? Should we be using this in all patients? So the IgA uh, nephropathy prediction tool, I think is very helpful with patient discussions, mostly to try to show patients that we're considering immunosuppression for 
why we think it's important to use immunosuppression. So, you know, pulling up a, a website and putting in uh, a patient's numbers right in front of them and showing them this is what your risk is for progression can be a very helpful tool. It, it never, for me, supplants what my own decision-making would be. Um, so it wouldn't basically influence my decision to use immunosuppression or not immune or not use immunosuppression because I feel very comfortable making those decisions uh, primarily on pathology findings and, and the clinical labs. But I do think it's very helpful for patient level discussions and trying to, to, to have a patient understand why you've chosen a specific treatment strategy. So uh, it will help me to say, this is the reason why I want to use immunosuppression because you're at a very high risk for progression. Or conversely, I can tell the patient, look, you have a very mild IgA nephropathy here, plug in your, your numbers to this risk prediction tool and you'll see very low risk of progression. We don't need to treat this with anything other than conservative therapy. The KDGO guideline currently defines high risk of progression as proteinuria greater than 0.75 to 1 gram per day after at least 90 days of optimized supportive care. Why do you think proteinuria is such an important indicator of risk of progression? And are there other factors we should consider here? Well, IgA nephropathy, unlike other glomerular diseases, has a unique relationship with proteinuria where it's not necessarily a threshold effect. So if we think of diseases like membranous nephropathy or FSGS, we generally say once you reach a threshold proteinuria, whether it's 3,000 milligrams a day or 4,000 milligrams a day, we start to see this jump in risk. With IgA nephropathy, while there are some thresholds and you know, 750 milligrams per day is one threshold that obviously KDIGO advocates for. Previously, it was 1,000 milligrams a day. But if you actually look at the data in terms of risk with proteinuria and IgA nephropathy, it's generally a linear relationship. So um, that's why proteinuria reduction is so crucial in IgA nephropathy because there's really no level of proteinuria where reducing it doesn't give you a major risk reduction. Even if you're you know, in a subnephrotic range or, or below 1,000 milligrams a day even, reducing proteinuria by 40, 50, 60%, no matter where the starting point is, will give you some clinical benefit uh, on average. The other factor that I think can be very helpful is the hematuria response. So for me, there are obviously patients who have a great proteinuria reduction, but if you have a great proteinuria reduction and resolution or a significant reduction in hematuria, um, that to me is an even better prognostic sign. So what I tell patients when we begin a course, specifically a course of immunosuppression, is success will look like stable or improving kidney function, a significant reduction in proteinuria, which for me is at least 40 to 50% and ideally more. And then what I tell them, and the best case scenario is that as you've lost your proteinuria, you also resolve your microscopic hematuria. And the patients who resolve proteinuria and microscopic hematuria are clearly in a very special class of having excellent outcomes. What I would say though, is that it's not the other case around. You can still have a very good outcome if you've lost your proteinuria, but retain microscopic hematuria. Um, so that, that so, so, so patients should not get discouraged if they haven't lost their microscopic hematuria because you're still in a very good group if you've lost significant amounts of proteinuria. But that subgroup that loses both the proteinuria and the, and the hematuria is in a very special uh, low-risk population. 
In your opinion, what is the most significant recent developments in the field of prognostication and predicting treatment response? Well, for me, in terms of prognostication and predicting treatment response, I still think the pathology is the, the most important uh, aspect. And I think this codification of, the, of using the Oxford score and how widespread it is used now um, is the most important uh, advance in terms of specifically prognostication um, and, and, risk mat and risk profiling of patients. I mean, there clearly have been a number of advances in how we're treating IgA nephropathy, um, but I think the prognostication and risk prediction, uh, obviously the risk score is very helpful, but to me, the pathology and the way it's been codified and been accepted and just is so widely used now and discussed amongst nephrologists has been a major advance for the field. And finally, what is your take-home message for nephrologists working in a clinical practice? Well, I do think if you're caring for IgA nephropathy patients, you do want to take each patient on an individual basis. Uh, it's helpful to have patterns that will guide your decision-making, but you do also, you always need to factor in the patient directly in front of you, specifically if you're thinking about using immunosuppression. So again, for me, there are clear things on a biopsy that will lean me heavily towards using immunosuppression or towards against using immunosuppression, but I never make that decision without thinking about the specific patient who's right in front of me. So there might be someone whose biopsy would tell me, you'll never want to use immunosuppression. And then I'm seeing a young, robust uh, in patient who clearly looks a lot better than what the biopsy is showing. And I may think about using immunosuppression in that standpoint. Um, conversely, I might uh, have, a, have a, a patient where um, maybe the biopsy is not as juicy as it might lead me to, to use immunosuppression um, and not uh, any clear evidence of labs, but as but but is is giving me some signal that that their disease is more active than I'm, I'm picking up. So again, you, you need to sort of tailor this to the individual in front of you. It's important to have tools at your disposal to help you form your decision. But once you form the decision, you need to tailor that to the individual in front of you. This brings us to the end of the episode. Thank you for joining us. If you have not done so already, please subscribe to the podcast on your favourite app or recommend us to your colleagues. We also have a Nephrology Knowledge into Practice website where you can find other episodes of the podcast as well as other free educational resources in nephrology. You can find a link to this in the episode notes as well as all the references discussed today. Thanks for listening to this summary. For updates on new developments in the field, subscribe to the podcast so you can receive these as soon as they are released. And we look forward to joining you next time.